This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss uh, the rise over the last half century and more of uh, dictatorships uh, in Latin America and their relationship to the United States, in particular the use of terror in those regimes and the ways in which that terror has both been supported by the United States and the ways in which that terror has come to the United States from these regimes. We have with us uh, a good friend, distinguished scholar, and really a a fantastic uh, writer and professor, Alan McPherson. Uh, from Temple University. Alan has written uh, more about these issues in interesting, thoughtful, and archivally-based ways than than really anyone else that I know. Uh, And he comes at these issues also with, I think, uh, as an impartial a lens as possible, as someone who cares deeply about these issues but is really empirically focused and interested in contemporary policy. He is, as I said, a professor of history at Temple University, director of the Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy at Temple University, and uh, he's written a number of books. Uh, his most recent book that just came out and available everywhere and perfectly on topic is called Ghosts of Sheridan Circle. How a Washington assassination uh, brought Pinochet's terror state, Pinochet being the leader of Chile, Pinochet's terror state to justice. Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Before we turn to our discussion with Alan, we have, as always, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? Excuse Us. Excuse Us. Okay, please. Excuse Us. Latin America, so many generals, so many juntas, so many coup d'etat, so many guerrillas, so many prisons, so much torture that it would burn your tongue to read off all the names, so many disappearing people. Latin America, how does that even work? How does a man that once walked through the park with its spraying fountains at dusk in the twilight disappear into less atomic significance than the little droplets of vapor that become the dew that in the morning rests on the park bench where his shadow is still staining the iron? Latin America, why Pinochet, why Perón, why Trujillo, why Castro, why Noriega, why Ortega, why Duarte? Latin America, I'm sorry for the condescending anaphora. I mean, who are the ones who are funneling arms through Tegucigalpa to random bands of outcasts in Nicaragua to come down from the hills, laundering the money by illegally selling arms to Iranian fundamentalist authoritarians? Who are the ones storming that sandy dot in the middle of the Caribbean with a tiny medical school to save the 95,000 people of Granada from the threat of a few too many leftists? Who are the ones trying to disappear the disappearances to justify the support of your far too many dictators to justify a quickly mythological war against a Soviet battalion of walls? And who are the ones instigating civil wars in Colombia a century ago to tear apart a peninsula to dredge a canal that killed so many more of you? Latin America, who even are you? The nations just to the south we barely even remember forgetting to think about. A wide-ranging, diverse expanse that was the first new world. Some testing ground for American ideology rejiggered so that we can blame you all 20 years later for the humanitarian messes we left trying to build an excuse for imperialism. Excuse us, Latin America, if we sometimes forget. Excuse us, Latin America, if we sometimes left you to lick third-degree burns and said you were throwing yourself onto the flames. I'm amazed, Zachary, at how you were able to rhyme so many difficult names and so many difficult concepts. Yes, that was so good. (laughs) Deep stuff. So what is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about um, 
how there were so many different uh, dictatorial regimes in Latin America, but but really about how uh, the United States in many ways is uh, to blame for supporting these regimes. Yet at the same time, how uh, we how soon we forget about that, and how soon we are, and how quick we are to uh, to condescend to Latin Americans about uh, the state of their political institutions. Right to, to to claim we have no responsibility for these regimes yeah. we've often supported. Right. Alan, how how do you, when you teach these issues and you talk about these issues, which I know you do better than anyone else, how do you begin to explain these uh, so-called dirty regimes, these dictatorships and their use of terror and their relationship to the U.S.? Right. Well, I mean, you know, we have to think of the dirty regimes of sort of the, the 70s and 80s, if you want, as uh, really particular to the Cold War. There had always been dictatorships in Latin America, right? Uh, in fact, democracy was quite new. But this was really a step back, right? I mean, a lot of these countries had experiment, experimented with democracy. Right. Uh, and Chile itself was really the most democratic country in Latin America, and it probably took one of the biggest steps back. And so something new was in the mix, Right in the 60s and 70s, uh, partly it was res- a response to the Cuban Revolution, okay. right, which begins in 59. And part of what this does is that Fidel Castro encourages guerrilla activities everywhere, sometimes directly, but sometimes just inspires mm. right guerrilla revolutions everywhere. And even though most of the time they're very small, they're quite powerless, they have almost no chance of of winning, right, right. of creating another Cuba somewhere. Um, they really spread fear throughout most of Latin America. And the response, the sort of reaction, if you want, is overwhelming. Wow. The response is that we need to think of everyone who is a political opponent, whether peaceful or violent, as a subversive, somebody who wants to take down our government and therefore need to multiply the repression, right? The torturing, the jailing, uh, the disappearances, all the things that you talked about. And the United States very much plays into this game, right? It's not full, but it's encouraging this kind of thinking. And it's supplying the training, the ideology, a lot of the weapons. Uh, and so there's all these factors, but they all pretty much have to do with the Cold War. And, and why does the United States support these regimes? You would think the United States would, in the case of Chile, for example, uh, see the disappearances, the killing of dissidents as something that runs, runs against our democratic values. Well, that's true. And I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I think even a lot of conservative Americans would have preferred democracy in Latin America. Um, and they did certain things to encourage democracy. But when it didn't really work out, right, or when democracy led to Marxists taking power such as, they, such as it did in, in Chile, they would go for the alternative. Right? The alternative then became uh, a military regime, a dictatorship. Uh, because that was going to take out the bigger threat, which is communism. So a lot of Americans really thought, we'd love democracy, but we don't really trust these people to handle democracy, and therefore we're going to go with the, the dictatorship. Right. This is some of the condescension that Zachary, I think, was referring to in his poem, right? Exactly. Sort of and then we want to forget about it once right. it happens. Right. So one of the real innovations of your recent scholarship, especially your new book, uh, is really to also look at how that process of uh, supporting dictators in places like Chile actually blows back in the United States, how the terror comes home. Most people don't know that story until they read your, your most recent book. Tell, tell us more about that. Sure, sure. Let me, ta- let me start with the, sort of the, the story itself, which is that on September 21st, 1976, Uh, The Pinochet secret police of Chile puts a bomb in the car of Orlando Letelier. He is a private citizen at this point, and he's working in Washington, uh, and he's an activist against the Pinochet government. Um, 
And uh, they want to eliminate him as a potential sort of thorn in their side. Uh, so they blow up his car. They kill him. They kill an American who happens to be riding in the car with him. In Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, and so what this really means for a lot of Americans, why they react so strong to this, and when I say Americans, I mean Americans in government, both Democrats and Republicans, they react strongly to this because they're realizing that the Cold War has really come home. Mm. Right? There's very few events of the Cold War that actually happen in the United States. Right, We'll send our boys to fight wars abroad, like in Vietnam and Korea, but rarely is there violence in the United States. And this is one of them. It's one of the really the few. And so Americans are realizing that they're sort of losing control over the Cold War, right? And that this has been done by an ally, mm-hmm. right? This is not, you know, Cuba setting off bombs in the United States. This is an ally of us who's supposed to be a strong anti-communist ally and then kills a socialist in the streets of Washington, D.C. So they realize we've gone too far in supporting these regimes and we need to scale this back somehow. And, and is, is this a, an exceptional incident or is there a pattern of these sorts of activities? It's exceptional in that it happens in the United States, but it's part of a broader pattern that has an actual name called Operation Condor. Uh, Operation Condor is a conspiracy, right? This is the best word for it. It is sort of a secret plan among South American dictatorships because they all kind of pop up right after Pinochet, right? In places like Argentina and Brazil. I'm sorry, Brazil is before Pinochet, but around the same time. But Pinochet is sort of the person who activates this, this sort of network. And part of what Operation Condor is, is chasing down each other's opponents in each other's countries. Hmm. So if Chileans have moved to Argentina, the Chileans will ask the Argentines, you know, try to find this person, put him in jail, kill him, whatever, let us know what you did. But it then goes beyond the countries that are in Operation Condor. And it goes to... It might go to Mexico, it might go to France, it might go to, you know, one of the Chileans is assassinated or at least is attempted to be assassinated in Rome. Uh, And then, excuse me, Letelier is very much part of this pattern, right, of war everywhere in the world because our enemies are everywhere and therefore we need to intimidate them and terrorize them everywhere in the world. Wow. And and, uh, as I understand it, there were also plots against uh, American members of Congress, right? Ed Koch from New York, right? Is that part of it? Yeah, there was talk about that. I'm not sure that the plot really went far. There was certainly nothing operational that ever happened in the United States, although we don't necessarily have all the documents. Right, right. There were there were concerns about that. Though. Yes. And, and so how did the United States react? How did the American people react? How did the U.S. government react to this? Well, at first, the reaction was kind of odd in that before we really had any evidence, um, you know, newspapers and people within the U.S. government tended to absolve the Pinochet regime because they said, this is too obviously Pinochet. Right. Right. He wouldn't do this because he'd be the first person we'd point a finger at. Um, like the NSC said, said this, right? The New York Times said this. Mm-hmm. A very pretty mm-hmm. liberal paper yeah, You quote said, this in your, in your book, actually. Exactly. Um, but then once some evidence started coming in that some Cuban-Americans were involved, there was a sort of gringo involved and... It's really seemed all, all point towards Chile. Uh, then they started really believing it. But it took about 18 months for them even to find the first person who was associated with this. So it was a slow investigation, but they put a lot of resources into it, largely because of sort of the, the middle-level middle, middle level technocrats, right? And not really President Carter. Carter wanted to solve this, but wasn't willing to break relations with the Chileans over it. And, and why not? Why, why didn't we take stronger action? I mean, this would seem like quite an affront. You point out in the book that uh, before 9-11, yeah. this, is, this is the most significant uh, foreign terror attack on the United States territory. Right. 
I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. You know, I'm not sure what was in the mind of people like Carter, but I think partly the victim is important, right? He was a socialist. Okay. And therefore, I think a lot of Americans were saying, well, he kind of deserved to be killed anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And there were certain people in the right-wing media saying this exact thing, right? They weren't saying it openly, but that was the, the presumption of saying, let's not investigate this too much because we don't really care about this person. Pinochet was doing essentially the right thing. The wrong place but the right thing, hmm. right? Uh, and plus, Pinochet is a Cold War ally. So if right. you take him down, who knows what will replace him? You could have a communist regime in Chile. So, you know, the Carter and Reagan governments, especially in the Reagan governments, there was more momentum towards replacing Pinochet, but with a sort of liberal democratic, you know, government completely shorn of any kind of socialism, right? And that's what eventually they got. So that's why they moved so slowly. They didn't want an Allende-type government to come back. Allende was the, the Marxist president from 70 to 73. So part of the Faustian bargain is being willing to tolerate a terroristic regime, even using terror on our territory, to prevent communists and socialists from coming to power. That's right. I mean, at some point, one American uh, policymaker says, we weren't against the coup at all. We were against sort of the abuse of it and the intense terrorism of it, you know, but we'll take some terror. Wow. Zachary? Um, so going back a little bit, how does the um, how does this event, but also American intervention in Latin America, contribute to the rise of intelligence agencies like the CIA and others? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the CIA comes from the OSS, right, yeah. which is a World War II spy organization. Um, there's a desire, you know, to extend the, you know, the. the extend American intelligence throughout the world and extend this sort of vision of national security, right? After World War II, we need all areas of the world to somehow be under our control, almost all areas of the world. We have this huge sort of line of protection. And so we extend what we mean by national security. Uh, so if you invade, you know, South Vietnam, for instance, you've, you've, you've sort of started war against the United States. And so the CIA is part of this militarization of, of, the, of the government and our sort of arrogance of thinking we have the right to spy on anyone anywhere in the world to protect American assets because there's so many more American assets. And so it's really sort of an extension of the same arrogance of in the you know, maybe 1920s of American Marines saying we have the right to land in Cuba or Haiti to protect national security, you know, on the shores of Florida, let's say, right? But it's just further away. And so the CIA is part of this whole thing. Hmm. What do you think, Alan, now that we've had the, the benefit of coming out of the Cold War and a generation of scholars led by you writing about this and, and a generation of activists coming out of this period, uh, what have we learned? Have we learned any lessons? Are, are, are we able to do any better in our relationships with uh, countries in Latin America and elsewhere? I mean, I think we have. We, we, not all of us have. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> there is always some talk of intervention, right? right? I mean, there was talk of intervention this year with, with Venezuela. Uh, exactly. But it was interesting that the backlash, you know, was pretty unanimous, right? Even among, you know, everybody in Latin America, most Venezuelans didn't want in U.S. intervention. Almost no Latin Americans wanted it. Uh, a lot of people in the Trump administration said, well, it's on the table, but we don't want it. Right. And a lot of people in the Pentagon and so on would say it would be crazy to try to invade Venezuela. But, you know, people like Trump are so used to thinking of intervention. They think it's easy. They think it worked. Right. Both those things are not true. Right. Um, 
And they don't think that there's a big difference between invading, let's say, the Dominican Republic, which is pretty small, relatively militarily easy to control, and a huge country like Venezuela, right. Right, which is the size of Iraq and the population of Iraq. Right. And so it, would cre- it might create another mess of the size of Iraq. Uh, so never mind sort of the morality of it, just the, the, the practicality of it right. is something that we don't understand. Right. And, and what about uh, our relationship with a government like the government in Brazil now, which, yeah. which has a, uh, a populist uh, leader who in many ways looks and sounds like Trump uh, and uh, in a way advocates the use of terroristic violence against his own enemies at home and is using, doing that, trying to close off certain parts of the media, things of that sort. Uh, have we learned that that could actually be harmful to us, even if in the short run he's friendly? Or, or, or are, we, are we still back where we started supporting dictators in the region. Yeah, I mean, it's it's harder because I think in general, we simply have a lot less influence in Latin America, okay. right? We don't have the arrogance that we think we can control Latin America. We're largely much more pragmatic, but we're more pragmatic because we're less powerful. We don't have the military presence we used to have. We don't have the spying presence. We don't have the economic leverage. Latin America is much more globalized than ever before. Interesting. I mean, for most countries in Latin America, including Brazil, China is the main is the main you know economic partner. Uh, and so whatever the Americans want or don't want from a country like Brazil doesn't make the same difference that it would have made in 1964, right? When we were essentially able sure. to say, go ahead and have a coup in Brazil. Right. Uh, we didn't participate in it, but we kind of planned to participate sure. in it. Uh, and so we simply don't have that sort of leverage. So I'm not sure that's really a moral improvement, um, but it leads to more pragmatism, which is good. Right. That makes sense. Zachary? What about other countries? How have um, other countries, both American allies and American enemies, intervened in Latin America? And how has the United States responded to that? Yeah, I mean, they barely have. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about colonial days when obviously yeah. the United States wasn't intervening. But, you know, since the early 19th century, there practically hasn't been any um, uh, any intervention by other countries. I mean, you know, the, the, the French... You know, momentarily took Mexico during the U.S. Civil War. The Spanish momentarily took the Dominican Republic, but those were actually due to the American Civil War, right? That well, that's why they, that's what they were sort of uh, taken advantage of. Uh, but since then, you know, there was really no Soviet intervention. There was some Soviet help to some countries like Nicaragua and Cuba, and missiles in Cuba. Yes, of course. missiles in Cuba, of course. But that wasn't really a military intervention. It right. was sort of an invited thing, right? Uh, but you could say that about a, you know a lot of country, Latin American countries inviting American weapons onto their shores. Uh, but an, you know an intervention, I don't think so. But you know there is the American fear that that will happen again. You know there have been certainly exercises, military exercises between the Russians and the Venezuelans, right, right. on the shores of Venezuela. Right. Right. And I mean, if you look at the the latest uh, season of Jack Ryan, right, the TV show, <laughs> it's all about the fear that the Venezuelans are harboring Soviet, you know, not Soviet, but Russian weapons. And there's the assumption that Jack Ryan has the right to go in there and stop this, that yes. the Americans, that this is completely unacceptable to the Americans, even though if a country in South America harbors American weapons, that's perfectly fine. Right. Right. But you cannot possibly harbor the weapons of another country. <laughs> right. So there is still a hypocrisy there. Um, we, we like to always, in, in our discussions, Alan, turn at the end toward uh positive lessons, sources of optimism, because we need optimism today, for thinking forward about American democracy. And for our young listeners uh, who hopefully will read your book and have thought about these issues and are learning about these issues, you know, what, what are some opportunities you see going forward to improve U.S.-Latin American relations and to move this region out of this, this ugly history of terror yeah. that, that, that you talk about? 
Well, let me pick a relatively sort of small example, but for Latin Americans, it's not small, which is really uh, improvements in human rights, okay. right? Which is a huge part of sure. democracy. So this case, the Latelier case, actually leads um, to thousands of other cases of trying to identify violators of human rights during the Cold War and punish them, mm-hmm. right? Or at the very least, identify them and you know identify the victims so that the families actually know. So there's been a whole process going on for really the last 30 years or so of trying to find everybody who was a victim and hopefully all the perpetrators of that violence yes. towards them and bring many of them uh, to justice. Many of them you know, are still free, but... Right now, there's about a thousand cases that have been adjudicated just in Chile alone. Wow, that many I didn't of know human that. rights. Yeah, wow. and I mean probably about the same number in neighboring Argentina. And so this is due to regular activists, right? To journalists, to people like Amnesty International who find out the you know the facts, and to jurists and judges who are willing to change uh, the the court system to try to try different kinds of cases and to be creative about bringing more democracy through through bringing the truth. Right. This is a, a great example. So it's, it's really an example of young people finding the evidence, bringing out the facts, yes. and then bringing this before legal and other uh, places where there can be some adjudication, some response. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'll give you another example, which is the, the latest riots in Chile. They've been mostly led by young Chileans. Wow. And they've mostly in, been in response to the fact that the Chilean economy is an unequal economy, mm-hmm. right? It really punishes the poor. It really is no different from the economy that Pinochet himself instituted in the 70s, right? While Pinochet left and there was some democracy in voting, there really was never economic democracy in Chile. And that's what the sort of current revolt is really about, is about rewriting the constitution to have some economic democracy because Chile is the most unequal country in Latin America and one of the most unequal in the world. Well, this is a a stirring uh, account of the power of citizen activism and how knowing history and investigating history can help bring out the dark skeletons from the closet bring them up forward and actually mobilize people for change. Uh, it's a very powerful example. Zachary, do you, do you find that persuasive? Is that something that can motivate young people like, like you to get involved in these issues? Yeah, I think that something that's uh, also overlooked too is the fact that uh, so many of us now are growing up with, with Latin Americans in our schools, in our neighborhoods. And I think that's something that will really uh, contribute in the next few years and, and now to, to a real reckoning with the United States role in Latin America. Right. And it's a history that you think people would be interested in? Oh, yeah. I think it's a history that uh, that really um, encapsula- encapsulates so many of the issues that the United States uh, is reckoning with right. in the new century. Well, I think uh, from, from your poem through Alan's uh, deep account, as well as his recent writings and his recent book, I think we have a great example of where knowing history allows us, first of all, to confront Uh, some uh, experiences from the past that still linger that are important for us to confront and how it can give us a roadmap not simply to learn about the past but to make for a better future. Uh, Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. And Zachary, thank you for your poem as always. And thank you for joining us on this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.